1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our friend ZipRecruiter for continuing to support the SpyCast family. You'll hear more about this great company later, but first let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Greg Elder, who is the Chief Historian for the Defense Intelligence Agency. This will be the beginning of a regular conversation with DIA. How frequent we are still figuring out, but you'll hear from Greg and eventually others from DIA discussing their key role in providing intelligence for decision makers at the Pentagon, on the battlefield, and in Washington. So welcome, Greg. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on Spycast. Thanks for having me. So I I want to ask the question that I think a lot of people may want to know. And, and, and DIA is somewhat tricky in the broader 17 agencies in the intelligence community. Some of them are easy to figure out, right? Treasury Department intelligence, they deal with money and finance. Energy Department deals nuclear weapons. State diplomatic intelligence. But you want to think why a DIA for two reasons. One is Army has their own intelligence agency, ONI exists, Air Force intelligence. And then again, you have. The central intelligence agency seems like they would be the ones taking all that big, broad issue. Why do you need this extra agency that really, for to be completely honest, many people only heard of it for the first time because of a former director who doesn't have the greatest publicity going on about him right now. So let's talk about why this was Found in the first place, this is not a brand new agency. This is not something like we created, like the Office of Director of National Intelligence, a couple of years ago. DIA goes back decades.
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, so, first of all, you look at the history of American intelligence, and particularly with military affairs, as we we went through a series of different conflicts, beginning with the, with the Revolutionary War. Where out of each one of those, we developed some sort of intelligence capability. And then at the end of the war, we said, we don't really need intelligence anymore. So we would get rid of it. And then we would go through another war. the Civil War, we had a really robust all-source intelligence unit. And at the end of the war, it disappeared. When you get to World War II, we finally realize we kind of really need to have a a true intelligence capability. So out of that, of course, we get the, the CIA, which came out of in part the OSS. Um, and then the service intelligence components in a, a couple of smaller element, uh, agencies as well. But what came out of that, so we have this, this intelligence board coming out of World War II where all of these intelligence agencies start getting together on a regular basis, sharing information and such, um, assisting in the development of national intelligence estimates, trying to put together that strategic assessments for senior policymakers that's so important for, for them to know what's, what's, what's uh, coming around the next bend. But the problem is, is that you had so CIA there, but you also had like seven or eight different military intelligence organizations sitting on, on this panel, and all of them with their own parochial interests and all of them with their own assessments, you weren't getting a DOD perspective on what was happening. What you were getting was you were getting an Air Force perspective and you were getting an Army perspective. And, in the 1950 s this really came to light about how dangerous that type of situation could be through what we had as the the bomber and missile gaps and, and both of those are situations where uh, the military intelligence organizations came out and said that we were falling drastically behind uh, the Soviet Union in terms of the bombers first and then and then the missiles, which was even a much bigger issue. Uh, the missile gap actually played a significant role in, in President Kennedy's election. I mean, President Kennedy sold himself on the person who was going to, to mitigate that missile gap between us and the Soviets. Um, and you had the services parochially providing their own unique perspective on things, and so the senior policymakers and senior military advisors in the government were never getting that one true DOD perspective. Well, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense uh, under, under Kennedy, comes in and, and right away says, as his very first thing, we need to do something about this. In fact, he spent his first three weeks as the Secretary of Defense looking at the missile gap specifically. And what he found is that there really was a tremendous missile gap. The problem is, <laughs> is that the missile gap actually was the opposite. The United States had a sizable uh, missile capability advantage over the Soviet Union. And what that showed is that, is that the impact of uh, this kind of misanalysis or parochial analysis that was going to senior policymakers, um, the type of impact it played. Because clearly we were prepared to, to spend enormous resources to try and mitigate that gap, to try and figure out what was going on, What in fact there really was no issue to begin with. So one of his first things that he does after, after he realizes this is an issue, he says, look, we've, we've really got to bring this all together and to try to find a way to come up with a consensus, uniform position with a unbiased uh, organization that can represent the Department of Defense and tell senior policymakers, not from one service perspective, but from a national perspective, that the military threat facing us is X, not Y. Uh, And so that's really why uh, DI was established. It was uh, among, you know, Robert Robert McNamara did a whole lot of changes, made a whole lot of changes to the Department of Defense. The very first new organization that he stands up is the Defense Intelligence Agency to be able to do that. Um, And also then when you look at the Intelligence Board, that was at one point composed of all of those different intelligence organizations from across the Department of Defense. Now what you have is they agreed the NSA should stay on there, Um, but you have now DIA representing the services uh, to be able to start taking over that mission and representing DOD
1: at a national level. I mean, going looking, these aren't agencies that are making mistakes. You know, it's not like Air Force and Navy are disagreeing because they have bad intelligence. In a lot of cases, they're disagreeing because the Air Force wants money for more bombers or for more missiles, or the Navy wants more ships. And so it behooves them; it's it's within their best interests to analyze intelligence in different ways, perhaps. Uh, and you know, not to rip on the, intelli- the the specific services. You know, this the budget is the key to everything, and, and so if they can make it look as though the missile gap exists, that means these agencies, like the Air Force and others, will get more money for particular things.
2: And, and so as DIA really came into existence, and it was a very rocky start. So you know the thing about it is you look back and you say, well, one of the, why is it that we know so little about DIA today? Um, our first couple of decades in existence, a really rocky start. So we were supposed to have a phased beginning where we would take over a number of the different missions from the different services. Well, if you're a service and you all of a sudden find out that you're going to lose you know, 50, 60 people, who are doing an Air Force mission or Navy mission, uh, and you're going to leave the this, this space for them, the people, and the mission, and it's going to go over to DIA. And by the way, DIA is probably going to use them to say, well, we don't necessarily agree now with the analysis that was coming out before. Uh, it, it was a very, very rocky start, and it took a good deal of time uh, to be able to demonstrate some success and be able to to val- validate our existence. Of course, another thing that comes out of that is if you're one of the services and you say you have to give up 20 people to DIA for a mission, uh, you're typically not looking for your best people right. to go over there. So, so we had to bring in new people off the street and some of the people who came over to us um, weren't necessarily the best the services had to provide. And then the final thing I'd say as far as that goes is when you're talking about a largely military organization, you have rotations. I mean, Military guys are coming in, they're there for two or three years, and then they rotate out and that new group of people are coming in. So there's always kind of with, with early on in DIA where there was a large military, we still have a large military contingent now, but a much larger military contingent then is the rollover of people at the beginning of the agency was fairly high. And so you know, you're trying to manage a new organization with a whole lot of new missions coming on board. Every six months we'd be taking on a new mission uh, trying to find the space um, and, and there's actually A kind of funny final Final piece to the to the Why DIA had such a rocky rocky start Our first director uh, Who was actually there for 8 years Which is really, really a long time Particularly as he, as he was quasi, he was military um, We actually kind of had some of our Foundings out of the FBI mm-hmm. So our first director, General Carroll He was with the FBI Most of his career uh, He was asked to come over uh, to help the Air Force establish some military capabilities, some counterintelligence capabilities, and they made him a one-star general. So he never was in uniform before, and then he gets frocked as a one-star general. Well, you can imagine that doesn't make a lot of the, the, the military guys who have spent their entire career to make one star. And then shortly after that, he's made the director of DIA, and he's a three-star general. And he's overseeing an intelligence, a joint intelligence organization, um, that is essentially taking away a lot of the roles and missions from the services, and it just it was it was a very tricky start
1: uh, to to our existence. Well, I, I, and unfortunately, or fortunately, it was kind of a rite of passage. Di yeah, gets thrown in the fire very very quickly, As if you know you know the basic history behind just the Kennedy administration, you know Robert McNamara comes in as you talked about in 1961, and then by October of 1962. There's a all hands on deck mission for all of American intelligence, and that's when the Soviets decide to put offensive missiles inside Cuba.
2: Absolutely, you, the the funny thing about the Cuban Missile Crisis too is we really look at it as a success because we managed to mitigate a you know, major threat without without go, you know, while going to the brink of war, we managed to mitigate it. But it's 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 interesting that people sometimes overlook kind of the bigger failure in it, and the missiles actually getting to Cuba to begin with.
1: Right. The surpri- I mean, it was surprising one way or the other. We, we found it before. It could have been really, really problematic, Absolutely. the fact that there was stuff there to begin with.
2: And, and that you know, we, we we just generally as a country misinterpreted the fact that, that the Russians would even do such a thing. But there's a funny quote from, from Khrushchev. He says, you know, maybe it's time to put a hedgehog in, in Uncle Sam's pants for once and see how they react. And so the russians move forward by by putting putting weapons into cuba but the entire the entire findings about how we and, and the other intelligence organizations were be, were able to play such an instrumental role in stopping it and di has a very key role in the D, in, in the history of the cuban missile crisis uh, is the the, the surface to air missile tubes, the sa2s that are that are positioned in cuba uh, we funny enough only had one person a colonel really kind of overseeing Latin American affairs. And he comes on board, and again, a colonel, so he's fairly fairly senior, um, and he really knows his business, and we're really lucky there that one of the people who, who actually was strong in all these positions was our person working Latin America. Well, you,
1: you could add a butter bar lieutenant as a Latin American guy, and he right. would have been in big trouble.
2: Yeah, yeah, and who knows? Maybe things would have turned out different, but we had Colonel Wright, who was a who, who was who was really a rock star as far as as far as military guys go with his experience with Latin America. But what he sees is he sees the deployment of Sa-2s throughout throughout Cuba, and it's interesting enough that they're getting them because this was fairly advanced capability that Russia was giving out at the time. So so both CI and us were both concerned concerned and alarmed about the fact that the Sa-2s are put into Cuba, but the disposition of the Sa-2s at certain parts of the island where Quite frankly, from a military perspective, there wasn't a lot of reason to put them. Uh, then we, end, we ended up getting some human reporting from an emigre who came to the United States who said that he saw these elongated tubes being moved into this area around where these, these strange SA-2s were happening. And the size of the, the, the tubes uh, were far in excess of anything that would have been a surface-to-air missile. So Colonel Wright begins to, to get really, really concerned about this. Uh, The problem at the time, though, too, was when the SA-2s were put in there was an agreement made by leadership that we would stop manned aerial flights over Cuba because of the risk of of a plane getting shot down. So we we took over part of the collection mission for this, driving the requirements. So we said, well, let's get an AQM-34 drone to actually try to fly over Cuba. Well, that got shut down because General Curtis LeMay wasn't really comfortable with releasing the fact that we had this new drone technology. Um, so, the next thing DI did, we were the first uh, agency to ever retask a satellite. So we have the Corona satellite up there, it's fairly you know fairly new, uh, and we have it retasked. Um, but when it flies over Cuba, it happens at a time of the day where there's heavy rain squalls. and so we're able to we missed part of the island altogether, uh, and then another part of the island where it was able to see and where there were actually some missile events going on. It was so early in the production, the, the, the buildup of the missiles uh, from just being on, on their storage containers and so on to actually deploying them that we weren't able to take anything from that. But when we started getting this intelligence about the fact that there were larger assets being moved into an area where there was a significant SA-2 coverage where nothing else should have been there, um, we went forward and said we really need to get the manned aerial flights going on. Because now this was a military initiative where we were using manned aerial flights, uh, including Navy assets. Uh, they, they said, "Well, DIA you should be taking the lead then on the requirements for this for this mission." And so it moves from from um, from outside of DI's per perspective in terms of the tasking of U2s and other aircraft to DIA's, and we put forward a requirement right away, saying that area over this 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 heavy dense densely populated sa2 area should be covered and right away we're able to see then uh the 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 buildup of missiles
1: a lot of people don't know that i mean you i've read dozens and dozens of books about this time period specifically about the cuban missile crisis and you see a whole lot of cia did this and cia did that and not to take anything away from what the agency did during this time but you know we teach here at the museum a Cuban Missile Crisis simulation for students. And the letters DIA, you know, the IA part do, but there's a C in front of it. It's just not part of the general narrative about the Cuban Missile Crisis.
2: A- absolutely. And, and I, I would really also kind of tee this up, as I would a lot of success stories. is it, it, It's really dangerous when you start talking about one agency, yeah. or one group being the lead for any, any, any major success that we have, there's a reason why we have all the different intelligence organizations that we do, and that's because even though there may be a little overlap between them, um, by and large there are so many unique things being done by the different agencies for different reasons that that quite often it takes more than one of these agencies to come together. And it, it, with CI and DI on this, CI and DI are the ones who actually go forward together and say we need, we need aerial overflights And we need to be able to start significantly increasing our our collection. Uh, And for our our perspective, by going forward and doing that, we were given almost carte blanche to start collecting on Cuba using whatever requirements, uh, whatever was needed. But the next thing that happens is so we get get the, the photos from the first aerial flights, manned aerial flights going over that we had set up the requirements for. One of the missions that DIA was taking over at the time, uh, it was still within CIA, but we were going to be taking it over. Um, what was what is now NGA, the National Geospatial Agency, and that at the time was the National Photographic Interpretation Center. And the deputy director of that center was, was a DIA, um, a DIA person, and there were DIA photo photo analysts there as well as as well as several of the services. They look at the photos and they immediately see. These uh, these missiles and the concern, and they called up uh, the special advisor to General Carroll, the, the special advisor to our director, who went over there that night and looked at the pictures and immediately went to several people across the Department of Defense as well as our director. Drove across town. It's one of those funny stories. Drove across town three or four times because you know you don't pick up the phone phone at that time, right? And we don't have a a internet uh, classified internet capability to be able to share information. So it's literally like like you see in the movies with the guy having the, the bag around his ha- hand and everything, driving handcuff, back and forth. Yeah. But they're able, they're able to get it across to several senior policymakers that these missiles are there. And the very next morning, uh, General Carroll and our analyst John Hughes, who's, who's really one of our, our, our true success stories. He's in almost every one of our major stories for, for several decades. Um, they start briefing. They go in the brief Secretary McNamara that morning, and then it gets presented to the president. So the ability to turn that information around very very rapidly once it was determined that there were actually missiles there um, played a big role. And both Carol and John T. Hughes would be briefing the chief of staff and the president every day. Uh, the joint chiefs of staff every single day for the remainder of the crisis um, coming out of it. So we get to the end of the crisis. You know, DI is actually heavily involved too in the pre-operational planning in case of an invasion. We're we're working. C- Carol has large resources diverted to work, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and were fully prepared in case of a contingency for war. But we're also then, at the end, one of the things that DI does is validation of treaties and, and and such, and being able to actually provide analysis after the crisis of the fact that they were spinning down. For a while, it looked like they were keeping the bombers there, which was still a real big concern for us, because they were nuclear-capable bombers. Seeing them being dismantled and sent back to, to Russia, and President Kennedy, uh, he he gets he starts getting lambasted right after the Cuban Missile Crisis because there's a lot of people who believe that he kind of let the Soviets keep missiles there and that that it was all it was all a fraud and that the Soviets won out of it. And as a result of that, he asked DIA to provide the first nationally televised presentation to the American public. Uh, John T. Hughes gets in front of all of the nas- all the nation on all the major channels and presents a 52-slide presentation, a photographic inter- photographic analysis on Cuba that shows the disassembly of all of the weapon systems, including the bombers, and them being carted up in the ships and then being sent back to Cuba. And you know, that first time of being on television, uh, of, of a major televised intelligence briefing, and that DI had been a major part of the Cuban Missile Crisis throughout um, helps garner some some weight for DIA to be able to say, you know, if, if this had been before DIA was created, you would have had an Air Force perspective about, hey, what should we be doing? You would have had a Navy. Now, with DIA, it doesn't mean that those voices aren't being heard, but what it is is that they're being chal- channeled into one voice that talks about the concerns, that talks about what the threat assessment is, and it's being voiced by one essential voice within the Department of Defense, Instead of the multiple different organizations,
1: so that was a a crisis. That was a you know thirteen day long crisis. DIA's first real support of a war. If you you know again chronologically, you can guess what's coming is Vietnam, Um, and it's a hell of a war. Obviously, and DIA uh, has the opportunity to do a lot of good and try not to make too many mistakes. There are some of those, but there are some major events during the Vietnam War, um, that DI really shines through. And I'm thinking more of the, the rescue missions, the POW-MIA missions, like um, Operation Ivory Coast, the, the Sun Sunte operation. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm going to have a follow-up, because I think that the um, military operations like this, people think just magically happen uh, yeah. without really understanding the, the ridiculous amounts of, of preparation and intelligence that goes into them. Yeah, the, the levels of effort. Uh, first, I just like take one, one step back, and
2: and really highlight that when you look at something like Vietnam, it's really important to note, and it's something that that we in the intelligence community cannot stress enough that that intelligence doesn't make policy, right? So we inform policy. What we're supposed to be doing is to give national policymakers the information they need to make the right decision. And in the in the years leading up to and as the decisions were being made by Johnson to actually escalate force, we were we were very clear um, about the the risk of of, of escalation in Vietnam, um, about the concerns, um, and and ultimately the analysis leading up to what we call the fork in the road, which is leadership going to President Johnson, military and civilian leadership going to President Johnson, and saying. Um, you either have to go one way or the other. Now you've been providing minimal support there. And if we continue down that road, it's going to go bad or you're going to have to escalate. And you kind of have to pick your poison. Um, our own director recently came out and said very something very similar with respect to Afghanistan of, of, of some choice needs to be made soon. Because if we don't do something soon, we're going to lose all of, the, all of the gains that we've made in the country. Um, we, we were very clear in saying with Vietnam that... Uh, while, while some people were saying, well, look at the enemy killed. Look at the number of the enemy killed every day. And, and, and look, we're winning over there. We don't need to, to make any changes. Uh, the big thing was how much food was making it to the cities without being taxed by the Viet Cong. How easy was it to transfer transit from one town or, or, or city to another? How much how much of the territory did the South Vietnamese actually really hold? And when you put those things together, it really showed that there was a significant um, a significant concern that the South Vietnamese were really on on the verge of losing. And so getting getting policymakers that information so that they can make an informed choice, um, the choice that was made in that time, of course, turned into the Vietnam War. Um, but yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we we have, to this day, uh, one of our key missions, uh, we call bringing our troops home, is the POW-MI mission. And that really began in 1967. So the Air Force kind of had led the POW mission in Vietnam, and and for good reason. The majority of the operations being conducted were Air Force, where they were they were uh, bombing and air to air campaign or fighting in the air to air campaign. So most of the POWs and MIA's were were Air Force, and so it made sense that they would oversee it. But as we started putting more and more military boots on the ground, um, they simply couldn't handle that mission. And quite frankly. Um, you know, when you start talking about army and marines, uh, soldiers being being taken and made POWs, there had to be a change in the in the perspective of how you were going to handle
1: that. Well, and the air force doesn't have the special operations capability to go in and do these big mass rescue op- operation. I mean, talking to the para-jumpers and others, they're going in and getting a one to one or two pilots, not necessarily a POW camp full of people.
2: Right. And so one of the, we, we right away. We had to divert a significant amount of resources to all of these POWs, and of course, it really started escalating. You started talking about, instead of talking dozens of POWs, you started talking about hundreds and hundreds, and then and then even in the thousands of POWs and MIAs. And that took a significant effort. And throughout, we were able to develop a huge body of information on literally every single POW. We collected all the photographs of POWs. We were able to get them identified and named and who they are, who they were. Uh, and also then start transitioning to a period where instead of just having to relay information on, you know, hey, we think that this this person, when they crash landed or when they were taken in the field, that they're a POW, that they're not missing in action, we actually started getting to a point where we started supporting actual operations behind enemy lines. The Vietnam War started drawing down, but the number of POWs we had, of course, was still very high. And that was an issue going into the Paris Peace Accords, one of the biggest things that uh, that, that presented a complication in terms of ending the war. Um, and there was a decision made that we need to start actually taking more action about that. And, yes, out of that comes um, what we call the Sonte Raid, Operation Kingpin, where uh, we had identified um, a couple years before the raid actually happened that there was a large POW camp, uh, roughly 60 people in it, uh, 60 military members in it. We were able to even identify by name who most of them were, uh, and it was just outside of Hanoi. And so we started a concerted effort to be able to collect information on that, and there came a time where we said, look, we have better information on this camp than just about any other camp out there. We know the number of people who are there. And uh, in, in, in talking with the operators and senior policymakers, the decision was made, well, maybe we should actually do something about this this time and, and start showing the North Vietnamese that we're serious about getting our POWs home. So out of that comes this concerted effort where working with all the different special forces uh, folks, as well as across the different intelligence agencies, DIA takes the lead on supporting this, what is known as the most uh, daring mission of, Viet, of the Vietnam War. And in this, we, we, we dedicate a bunch of analysts. We start managing the collection process for it. So we're flying AQM-34s over the camp. Uh, there are SR-71s flown over the camp as well to get higher altitude imagery of it. Um, one of our analysts, who actually had earned two Purple Hearts in the Vietnam War, came home, knew everything about the ground enemy ground forces, um, helps the CI build a, re, a life-size, well, not life-size, but a very large model of the camp specifying exactly how many feet it was from one from one building to another. Uh, they the CI had a fantastic model builder. We had all the intelligence. So we built this really great model. Um, our Air Force analyst and, and, and such started working in terms of what the air threat was going to be. And and over the course of several months Uh, we developed this fantastic operational plan that that to near perfection we knew everything about where all the enemy assets were special forces guys are ready to go we move all the special assets to Thailand and they start preparing for the raid now here again we don't make policy so a couple days before the raid a few days before the raid is going to happen we start losing the 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 footprint of the fact that there were actual soldiers there. What we concerned we're concerned about is when we were flying the AQM-34s over and such, and you're taking the imagery of the camp. What you see uh, are certain signs of life: shovels moving, Mm -hmm. you see feet coming out of out of the stalls of restrooms, um, little things like that, footprints in the ground, whatever it is. You start getting a sense for the fact that there's proof of life there. And over the course of several days, we started losing that proof of life. So of course we're right ready to go in if we delay it we risk the security of the operation if we don't go in then we potentially risk the the you know if we do go in you know and they're not there that, right. that's 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 bad um, so we took it to the secretary of defense and ultimately to president nixon and the decision was made that we simply could not afford not to not to conduct this sort of operation that that it would be it would be sickening to find out that they were actually there and we could have done something to have stopped it so we actually conducted the operation, and, and it went off uh, virtually without a hitch. We we, we hit the ground. Um, we we get in a firefight The military. Gets in a firefight with the with some of the North Vietnamese in the region. Um, but we get to the camp, and there's nobody there. Uh, and so some people would call that some people would call that a failure. Uh, interestingly enough, um, so I I, I, mean, I I've been having a series of meetings with the former Sontay prisoner who got moved just a few days before uh, he actually worked in DI later on uh, and, and also other, other POWs from Sonte and across the entire POW spectrum in Vietnam. we did a, a uh, we, looked, we, we, we gave a package to, to all the returning POWs at the end of the war, more than 300 of them and asked them a series of questions. And one of them, what was the single most important factor in keeping you going throughout the time of your POW um, uh, detention? Some of these guys were there for seven years, six, seven right. years, and so on. And overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the largest answer that came back was the Sonte raid. Because, first of all, uh, whereas all of the camps had been, had been all over the, country, the countryside, Vietnam, many guys were isolated for years without ever talking to another American. The Vietnamese were so concerned that we would start conducting more of these operations and they couldn't secure them all that they moved all of our POWs together. Hmm. So that now they're able to start communicating with each other, guys who had lost all hope in ever being able to be saved Now they're with their buddies. And also they know that the Americans, that we haven't forgotten about them. We conduct this major raid, and maybe there's more raids to come. We haven't forgotten about them. You know, it's not unlike in the um, Black Hawk Down kind of scenario in Somalia where our POW was on the ground, and we flew helicopters all around saying, hey, we haven't forgotten about you. Keep your chin up. We're going to be trying to get you. Um, That's what the Sante raid did uh, for for the POWs in Vietnam. We brought them home. It really mattered. For DIA, the significance of it really wasn't just the fact that you know the fact that there was a large benefit to POWs. Um, this was the first time that we really supported a major uh, uh, special operations effort, and we were able to demonstrate as an agency that we could we could put the right assets against it, that we could collect all the information, that we could establish the right priority intelligence requirements against the right targets to be able to get the right information. Um, ultimately. You know, when you go to the Air Force Museum, they have a really big thing on Sante. And they're, they're, the thing that they stress is, as is, is the Air Force, our part of the mission was flying a whole range of different aircraft into this mission, getting them out and having everything work, work really well. And they were absolutely great in doing it. And from our perspective, from the intelligence perspective, everything in the mission went right, even down to, right, letting the President of the United States know that it best was 50-50. You know, hey boss... Sorry I'd love to tell you that I'd love to tell you that when we land there they're going to be there but we can't do that. And so you have the risk of the president as the president of the United States to have to make a very tough call. But we gave him the call by being able to provide that information and ultimately he went ahead with it. So from an intelligence perspective we demonstrated a real capability to be able to start doing that and that has lasted to this day where we have we have been instrumental then in supporting Uh, not just strategic
1: operations and planning, but all the way down to the most tactical operations on the ground. We'll have more with Greg in one minute, but let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. Our new building is going up. It's starting to look like an actual building. The construction of the new museum is chugging away, but soon comes the hard part. We eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people. Of course, who doesn't? But the process seems never ending, and it can take a huge amount of time, time we don't have, as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job, better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. We'll get back to Vietnam, but I want to skip ahead while we're on the subject matter of rescue operations because there's a, a very famous rescue operation where the person was actually there, uh, and this is the Jessica Lynch operation. Now, a lot of, a lot of listeners, if they're old enough, I mean, God, people are getting younger. I, I feel like such an old curmudgeon that, you know, there are people in college right now who are babies during nine eleven. But if you're old enough to remember a, a, uh, a major story during the early years of the. Uh, the response to 9/11 and the Iraq War was the capture of was he PFC Jessica Lynch at the time, uh, who was was a combat arms soldier, but and everybody was at the time and got uh, captured uh, and then later on rescued. Can you talk a little bit about DIA's role? And that operation, this is an, this is a really cool story. This is about as as spy crafty as it gets.
2: Yeah, I like the story. Uh, in, in our upcoming museum, we're going to be we're going to be highlighting. And by the way, I would note to you, you're not the one with all the gray hair, so count, count your <laughs> blessings in terms of looking old. Uh, so she was captured and uh, by the Iraqis, and, and she was being held at a hospital because uh, she had actually been hurt. Uh, of course, one of our big missions, as I said, is bringing them home. We never ever give up trying to find, uh, trying to find our, our people, and so we had people on the ground who were try- who, who made it a priority, intelligence requirement, to find out where she was, as well as other POWs, uh, and, and and to be be prepared at a moment's notice to be able to do something. Uh, by luck, we have a walk-in source. This is a person, you know, walk-in being a person who, uh, for one reason or another, for money or simply because they believe in the cause walk in and provide you valuable information one of the people from the hospital um comes in and turns himself in and says well i know where she is and she works uh, she's at the hospital that we're at uh and and i'm happy to try to do what i can so what we very rapidly did was we jerry-rigged a a kind of like gym bag and put a camera inside of it that that you know, to this day, we have this, this bag. You can't hardly see the little hole in it where the camera is. And he uh, offered himself up to go back to the hospital and do a full walk around of the entire hospital to find out one proof of life, You know, to be able to prove to us that she actually was alive and where she was, but then to provide all of the information in terms of the entrance and egress routes in and out of the hospital, the security, what issues might come of that, and he walked through the entire hospital, and then he comes back and he provides us with, with all of that information, which then we are very able to rapidly and succinctly put into maps um, and to be able to go brief the special operations folks uh, who then, in, in a very, very short period of time, turned that over into a successful mission where they went in and they got her out. Uh, and this is this is the type of thing, that, having worked on this since the 60s now, uh, we've really been able to... Uh, to, to to get specialized in is the ability to support very rapid, uh, very rapidly uh, saving people. Another uh, Jessica Buchanan in Somalia, where uh, here's an aid worker. So we don't just we don't just care about our soldiers. We you know we're Americans and we care about saving our, our fellow Americans. Jessica Buchanan Buchanan is an aid worker. She and a, a foreign aid worker are captured there uh, by by Somalis and held hostage. As a proof of life, they they videotaped her, and she mentioned that she was feeling very sick and that she quite frankly wasn't sure that she was gonna live a whole lot longer. And so um, we really had to expedite things, and we we put all the information together that we could, and we were able to highlight where we thought she was likely to be. Uh, And as part of that then, uh, they were able to conduct a special operation and get her out and get her to a hospital where she had a surgery, and she's managed to live to this day. Um, those types of missions they take you, know, you have to have the right experts not just not just p o w folks tracking down are they alive and such but but in that case, you have to have people who really know about Somalia, who really right. know the environment that they 're operating in, um, the threat level there what the the medical for instance, one of the things that we do is medical intelligence, which is often overlooked but you know, when you send military forces into a different type of operating environment what are the different types of things that can happen there in terms of, of likely to be able to conduct, get an illness or so on uh, and so there's really a substantial amount of work that goes into these things and of course all of these things are happening all the time, always being prepared. I tell people you know most people didn't think in the 1990s that we would be operating in some of the places we did. You think about the traditional threats, and, you know, was it Russia, is it China, and right. so on. Uh, in the 1990s, you look at where the U.S. deployed for operations, and you see Haiti and Rwanda and Zaire and Bosnia-Herzegovina and these really smaller places that, that most people don't think about. But if you're going to be have to be prepared for contingency operations anywhere in the world at any time, you have to have people who are versed in those areas, who know the language, who know the environment, who know the military capabilities. And that's you know really the thing that DI brings to bear. We, we, we essentially say as an organization, we're there to decisively prevent, right? So we want to prevent wars. We have a huge diplomatic mission as well. Um, prevent, but then to the degree that you have to fight, that we're there to decisive, provide the information necessary to
1: de- decisively, Defeat the enemy and win wars. Right. Let's kick back to to Vietnam era because if if you grew up in my generation, you know one of your uh, coming of age movies was Top Gun, and the you know I was like ten years old or something when it came out. And there's a interesting argument in the beginning is that like during Korea, the United States had a pretty overwhelming ratio of kills versus the North Korean and actually Soviet forces. Uh, but in Vietnam, that dropped to like 3 to 1 or 2 to 1, next to nothing, when our pilots just, you know, it was all missiles all the time. No one knew how to dogfight or anything else like that. And then in the 1980s, all of a sudden, we have Maverick and Goose. And we're, we're, we're using our F 14s, which is the plane really designed to just go fast and straight. But somehow it can outmaneuver a MiG 29, which is not really a MiG 29 anyway. Um, Top Gun comes straight out of, D- I mean, DIA. Resources and can you tell a little bit about that story? Because I think, you know, if you look at the last, you know, six or seven or eight or nine small events—let's not call them full-fledged wars—but small conflicts where there has been have been air-to-air engagements since the end of Vietnam. I think we're something like 50-0. and 0. I mean, we're basically, we haven't lost an aircraft to an air-to-air engagement since Vietnam. I know there's been some stuff shot down by ground-based weapon systems, but there's been no F-15 going up against a MiG-whatever and losing an air-to-air engagement, and it has a whole lot to do with some of these programs that were designed in the 1980s based on information from DIA.
2: Yeah, so you get that decisively winning thing, which is what we have been able to to do, as you mentioned, since since the time... Uh, of the program that I'll talk about. So we were suffering significant losses against the Vietnamese, and one of our our chief concerns was that we didn't have the type of understanding about the aircraft that we're operating against in Vietnam, most specifically the MiG-17 and the MiG-21, which, quite frankly, were very small, very maneuverable. Um, And there was kind of this perspective of, of many American pilots at the time which, which comes out in the program that I'll talk about of, well, but we're Americans and we have the most sophisticated weapons in the world. Um, and and we didn't have a very good understanding of why we were losing the way that we did. So one of the things that DIA did, and we worked with the Air Force closely on this as well, is we identified, you know, we said we really need to find out about these, these foreign military capabilities. And as part of that, as part of one of our science and technology things that we do, we spend a lot of time on science and technology and trying to exploit Um, what the enemy is doing. We said we actually need to get our hands on these, right? We need to actually get a MiG-21. We need to get a MiG-17. We actually need to take these things apart, see how they actually operate, put them together again, and actually road test them, so to speak, to get a better sense. Uh, Well, towards the end of the Vietnam War, we we get lucky, and we had developed partner relationships with a number of other countries. And one of these countries was able to uh, obtain a MiG-21, and we, we made an agreement. We ended up getting the MiG-21 over here in DIA uh, and working with the Air Force literally disassembled the thing, right? In fact, the pilots, some of the pilots were very upset because they wanted to fly these things around first. And we said, no, we really need to get to grassroots ground-bottom ground truth about this capability. So we did a lot of work taking this, this aircraft apart, putting it together again, uh, drawing up schematics on it. We wrote a 300-page assessment. It was just like a tomb. On the MiG twenty one and all of its capabilities, then we you know reassembled it, put it back together, and then we we, we work again working with the Air Force. There's more on the operational side, uh, and the Navy. They got a bunch of pilots to come, and they started flying this MiG twenty one against the best against a whole range of our aircraft, whether it was the F one hundred five at the time, the F four, a number of different aircraft. Um, shortly after that, we also then uh, by sheer chance in that same relationship managed to get two MiG-17s. Same thing, bring them, take them apart, put them back together, uh, start flying them against uh, the adversaries, did all the analysis. And out of that, you know, we came up with a whole bunch of information that we were able to then inform the actual pilots and, and also the firms out there building our next generation weapon systems because ultimately, you know, near-term, near-term gains and changes doesn't fix the long-term perspective mm-hmm. of what can we do to really exploit the weaknesses of our adversary. So we find the you know, MiG-17 doesn't have any missiles, but it, it flies very low, it's very hard to see, it's extremely maneuverable. In fact, there wasn't anything that we had in our, in our aircraft arsenal at the time that had the maneuver capability. It generated almost no exhaust, whereas the F-4 put out this huge black plume behind it. Um, so when the adversary was able to fly at low levels against us and catch us by surprise, they were winning uh, there's this great quote by one of the Navy pilots who flew and this is called the have program so there was have donut have donut um, I'd like to have a donut myself <laughs> have donut uh, there was have drill and a couple of these others uh, in looking at these aircraft and this Navy pilot um, you know he said every single time we had one of our pilots go to this program and fly against the mig-17, they invariably lost every single one of their first engagements because they went in thinking they were going to win and they were not prepared for just how capable an aircraft it was. So out of all of this, we literally made substantive changes to to the aircrafts themselves. We went back to having guns on the aircraft instead of just missiles. Um, we we started training our, our pilots in much more, uh, much more realistic conditions. A top gun was actually then created at this time uh, so was the Air Force program where they teach advanced training for their pilots. Uh, and they, they pretty much had their origination out of this because when, you, when when they started sending the pilots out to fly against this MiG-17 and the MiG-21 and everything, and they noticed just how much it mattered to actually train against these, these aircraft and what the capability of these aircraft was, they figured they needed to make some substantive changes in their training routine, the type of weapons they were using. And so out of that, you know, today, um, it was declassified shortly after we had a run-in with some Libyan MIGs where we shot the Libyan MIGs down. And he said, well, look, we've made great strides in our air-to-air capability in large part because of all the lessons learned that we've managed to learn from going back to the HAVE programs and being able to also develop new technologies to counter.
1: Well, it's also, I mean, this is the time period... You know, new aircraft don't just magically poof out of like one years of development. The you know the the state of the art design aircraft today, like the F-15, the F-18, you know, even talking about some of the stealth aircraft today, they're they were started to they, they were started to be designed. Nice grammar. Their design began back in the late 60s and 70s when we're trying to figure out what they were going to need to be able to do in order to fight. In a modern battlefield, so, I mean, I can imagine that some of the intelligence coming from understanding foreign aircraft, and then later on the MiG twenty-five and others, which we were gifted as well, um, you know, those played a big role in how, whether it's Lockheed Martin or McDonnell Douglas, designed these new aircraft.
2: And you know, whether whether it's aircraft or anything else, you know, there's there's always this race where we, you know, we develop a capability, there's a counter capability developed, and you always have to try to stay ahead. We. we And we call it, um, you know, staying ahead through technology and innovation. You have to continuously change your technology. You have to continuously innovate. And there's a huge intelligence footprint to be able to do that. When we look at post-9-11, you know, one of the biggest threats that we faced is the improvised explosive device, the IED. And we have, we've been fairly effective in trying to stay, it it took a little bit of learning right up front. But we had this essential intelligence war going on of trying to exploit um, IEDs and find out what was wrong with them. And, and, and call it IEDs, call it aircraft, there's always that battle going on, and that's one of the real missions um, that we have is trying to stay ahead of our adversaries through not only figuring out what they're doing, so exposing the truth, um, not figure figuring out what they're doing, but then how can we stay ahead of that?
1: I want to ask you about desert. I want, we'll go to the Cold War in a second. Let me actually skip a little bit ahead to desert storms. I think there's an interesting dynamic here where uh, going into the war, again, this is when I was old enough to know what was going on. Uh, Actually, probably the first big foreign policy issue where I kind of followed everything that was happening. And I remember the lead up to it was Iraq was the fifth largest army in the world. They just fight fight a decade long war with Iran. So I'm saying that this is going to be the mother of all battles. They shipped 100,000 body bags to the Middle East Uh, The assumption, at least from the public perspective, is there's going to be thousands, if not tens of thousands, of of American soldiers killed. And then the opposite happens. So do we look at this as a failure of intelligence or is this a failure of telling the public what reality is? Or did DIA walk into that pretty much knowing what was going to happen?
2: Well, you you never walk into anything assuming that you're you're going to know what's happened. Uh, what what you do what you do get a feeling of though is when you do really really strong foundation what we call foundational intelligence which is you know you never walk into the room without knowing your adversary it's just like any type of sport or whatever where you say I'm going to spend as much time as I can understanding them so that when we actually get out there um, we have a sense of what what's happening we knew um, we knew how the uh, Iraqis were, we're going to use their armored forces. So, for instance, that the Iraqis were more likely to use a tank as a sitting piece of artillery or moving artillery, where they're going to move it and they're going to sit it in one location, um, making it a standing target, uh, and then they were going to use it to just shoot essentially as artillery, that their mobile warfare capability was not very effective, even if they had a large number of tanks and such. Um, we also had a sense of of their capabilities relative to ours, you know, and that's a key part of this. If you know that the frontal armor in your tank, um, the frontal armor on the enemy tank, and since most tank battles are fought uh, frontal to frontal, uh, if you know that there's a decisive advantage there, then you're able to plan for that. And in terms of air capability as well, of course, we had a very solid understanding. So when you say, we know what our general capabilities are, vice the adversary, but we also know how they're going to utilize them, what, what's their planning Process. What's their doctrine for these? Um, we we had a fairly good sense of of that if the if we deployed our forces correctly that we had we had a real advantage. Um, I, I think that there is a little bit of a surprise just how successful um, we were, but we had developed a very very strong baseline foundational assessment of Iraq and its forces. And now you move forward a decade, and you get to 2003. And by that time, we had we had a very strong grasp of of the Iraqis and and how all how everything was going to operate as a result.
1: And I think they had a much better grasp of our our technology yeah. and our capabilities in 03. They they certainly didn't want to have a stand up fight against us then. I think it, it's interesting to see the the, the lack because I mean, it really comes down to I me mean, Desert Storm. Was the first time American technology had been tested at such a level, because the generation of technological change coming out of Vietnam was just about everything, right. right? You had you know the M1 and the Apache and the Blackhawk and everything from you know new Marine systems, the new Air Force, the F15, and everything else. And how much of the DI do you do anything of kind of understanding our equipment versus theirs? Like how much do you know about American based technology and does that help in your assessment of the capabilities of winning a war versus something that's developed over there? Well so we're not so because we're not actually we, we try to keep
2: but we try to keep our, our eyes on our own military capabilities as well. And a lot of the things that we do in terms of exploiting adversarial capabilities is is getting the feedback in terms of the adversary's capability and then and then being able to address that against our own. We predominantly do the foreign part. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, we have, you know, our, our, we're very much ingrained in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, and so we're sitting at all the meetings. And we're participating in all the different endeavors to make sure that intelligence, when it's integrated into the into the how we're going to fight everything, that there's a general understanding of how our forces are going to be used relative to theirs, and what type of capabilities we're talking about, and then also from the S and T perspective as well, science and technology perspective as well, as we are. Again, exploiting these capabilities, we are working with our own, our own developers as well, and hopefully helping them stay ahead of it, so that so that we have our own sense from that as well. Um, but it's again, it's a tr- it's it's tricky to be doing everything at once. Right. Um, but but that goes again to why you have to have these organizations doing doing all of these types of of, of things.
1: So I, I want to let the listeners understand that. Uh Greg is a a current employee of the DIA and certainly has to probably think before every one of his answers about what is classified and what is not. Uh, So it's fun to watch him struggle uh, (laughs) sitting across (laughs) from me right now going, oh, God, what can I say? Uh, So I'm trying not to ask him the questions where he's really going to have to struggle, keep it more history, but I think as we move forward.
2: I uh, I will say one thing about the the desert storm, though, and there's there's some great quotes from from General Schwarzkopf and, and, and General Colin Powell. Um, you know, the chairman and the guy on the ground leading leading the forces and you know, they, they say at the end of this conflict that literally there's probably not another time in history in combat operations where intelligence was so critical and vital to the winning of the actual conflict. I mean it's it's one thing to have a general sense of your enemy and, and kind of how they're moving. It's another thing to have almost a continuously updated sense of what your enemy is doing, where they're at, how they're operating. Uh, and so on, so that you're able to provide real-time information to to your forces as they're moving forward. Uh, and as a result of Desert Storm, we got uh, what's called the Joint Military Unit Award, which is pretty much the highest level award the Department of Defense grants. DI wins a Joint Military Unit Award out of, out of Desert Shield and Desert Storm for our
1: efforts. We've talked a lot about information to policymakers and decision makers. How much of a role does DIA have in providing battlefield commanders and lower level people with information. I mean, one of the things, a background, one of the things that we want to focus on more the spy museum, certainly moving forward, is that we may have taken a little too much of a 30,000 foot view and say the, the consumer that matters is the president. Well, as an ex-military guy myself, I cared a whole lot as a tank commander whether or not I had ad- accurate information about what was going on on the battlefield. So, how much does D or is that G two? If it's or actually going down to S two, if that's the you know, is that fed by DIA? Is there a concern for you know top down versus you know sending stuff up?
2: A- absolutely. So so you know when you're talking about the actual forces deployed on the ground and they're they're kicking in house doors and things like that or whatever, um, you're you're really talking you know, kind of like the the, the S two or G two level. Um, and, and even more, even more might do that, even than sometimes just your analyst on the ground. But DIA in 1986 was, was officially, we have been doing it for a long time, but we were officially designated a combat support um, element. And so we absolutely do support all the way down to the warfighters on the ground. Uh, there's a couple ways that we do this. One of the things that happened a couple decades ago uh, was that the different combatant commands the intelligence components within the combatant commands actually transitioned to being DIA. So that, you know, one of the things, just as you say during the 1950s with the missile gap and bomber gap, is you say, well, this service may have had their own parochial interest in looking at something and so on. When you get to Vietnam, the Military Assistance Command in Vietnam um, on the ground had... Almost virtual, say, in all the intelligence coming out of there, we find that the intelligence in, in Vietnam that senior policymakers and the guys on the ground were getting about the adversary was was terrible. It was it was horribly inaccurate, um, and and you get to the lessons learned and saying you kind of have to you kind of have to have again an honest broker. Now, our folks who are in CENTCOM and PACOM, Pacific Command and, and, and such, um, you know, they still. Uh, are looking at their region. They are specialists in their region. But by being, being DIA, what we've been able to do in part is to take out some of that parochialism and saying that they have to be honest brokers. Right. Uh, lessons learned from the weapons of mass destruction was not everybody gets to have their own analysts. Right. So I, I at one point in time wasn't analyst for a very small unit. I wasn't part of any organized intelligence organization that you said, hey, we, we need an, an intel guy on our staff. And what you get out of that is people who aren't necessarily trained in tradecraft, who don't necessarily know their mission and roles. And you get that concern of parochialism of saying, I don't want to go in front of my three-star and tell him something he's not going to like. Right. So I'm going to tell him what he wants to hear. By now having everything fall under kind of one rubric and command, you hopefully start getting that top cover. And so now our combatant commands, we we, we have headquarters here. We ultimately, as an agency, deploy people to the theater of operations. Right now, 40%, roughly 40% of DI employees are out at combatant commands or deployed or, in essence, not in the local area. Um, So we're at a lot of different places at once. And we are with the combatant commands. We're on the ground, and we are absolutely acting as not just the a critical element in the information going up to senior policymakers. You know, Secretary of Defense is a really, really, really critical um, customer of ours, but then also going down to the ground uh, to make sure that our folks on the ground
1: are getting the appropriate information. So I, I'm i purposely moving around the Cold War and circling as I think we, it would be crazy for us to try to tackle piecemeal. I think we'll probably, the next time you're here, are going to really hunker down on that Cold War time period. But one of the things I want to ask you about, uh, you talked about medical intelligence earlier, and I think that might be interesting to the listeners, that how DIA is able to serve even the public in many respects with things like um, an evaluation and analysis of new potential diseases and viruses around the world. You know, you talked about the fact that we have forces deployed all over the globe, and then sometimes sometimes local conditions change in such a way that it might affect our soldiers uh, and this, the, the, I guess the, the H1N1 virus is a really good example of this where you know it wasn't going to come to the United States for quite some time if it ever does but we have military forces very near to some of the areas where some of these crazier things and I think of Ebola also where the idea right. is Absolutely. we have AFRICOM soldiers down there that are very near some of these massive outbreaks how much of a role does DIA play in, in medical intelligence that we may have heard the results of you know, in news stories in the United States, but not know that it's Dia Center.
2: So, Dia is the mission manager for for medical intelligence, and the National Medical Intelligence Center here in the U.S. Um, falls falls um, under under our auspices. And you know, it's it's a really great story with them because some of the, the some of the things that they do, people don't know about. So, Fukushima happens in Japan, and our folks are providing um, environmental and medical analysis about the impact of all the radiation. Um, um, coming out of there and being able to work with the Japanese on one hand, but also alert Americans throughout um, Japan about the threat and where it's likely to go. Um, they do the full range of, of mission all the way from, so suddenly you know, you're looking at a potential adversary and you see them order up 5,000 caskets. And move them to a certain area. Well, that's a key indicator that that hey, gee, wonder why they suddenly need 5,000 caskets along the border with Kuwait or something, right? So, so there is an operational perspective to this in terms of things like that. There's the operational perspective in terms of again, our our our, our soldiers are going to be deployed somewhere. Um, but then we are absolutely a part of that warning mission writ large for our, for our country. Uh, and H1N1 is 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 a great example for that because. A month before the World Health Organization put out the alert about H1N1, um, DI had already put out the first warning about it uh, and and did a whole series of finished intelligence products, but parts of those were able to be distilled down for public release, which the news was able to then use about the growing threat of of this crisis. And when you look at where H1N1 actually ended up, of course we're very lucky that it didn't turn out to be You know, another another 1917, 1918 influenza that kills, you know, 5% of the world or something. But when you look at actually where it went, the U.S. was one of the larger countries in terms of, of people who caught H1N1 in terms of fatalities. And being able to get leadership ahead of that by warning them, again, not policy, not telling our policymakers you should do X, but informing our policymakers that we think that there's this new virus uh, that's coming about that has the possibility of, of having a major impact on on national health and global health, and and also the, the, the being able to track where it's going to and, and trying to mitigate it, uh, being able to participate in that, you know, our 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 folks, you know, we we because we're defense intelligence, we often we often get the you know our job is to go help break things and. And quite frankly, that is part of of our mission. We're a combat support element. Um, But we've done an awful lot in terms of humanitarian missions and being being able to provide information like this where you're hoping to mitigate a a threat to a a human crisis type threat, um, trying to mitigate it through that, just as we do through diplomacy. Diplomacy, again, being one of our things. So not everything that we do goes necessarily to support combat or to prepare for combat. Um, What you really want to do is to be able to stop it before it happens. Whether that is a crisis in China where where a J-8 aircraft hits our EP-3 and forces it down, and you say, gee, how are we going to avert a major crisis with the Chinese, or whether it's something like H-1N1 where suddenly you have this virus come about and you
1: start saying, wow, what is the real threat from something like that? Again, we'd like to thank ZipRecruiter for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right. Again, free by going to ZipRecruiter.com/first. That's ZipRecruiter.com/first. Well, Greg Elder is the chief historian for the DIA. This is uh, not the last time you're going to hear him. We're gonna—I think—we'll we'll really get knee-deep in the Cold War next time you come back, and even talk about some massent stuff since DIA is the uh, the lead agency for that. Um, I would love to tell you out in listener world when that's going to be. I think. We're just going to figure out when it works. Uh, we're, we're both pretty busy, so we'll find a time sometime soon to come back uh, and talk again. I think once we've covered the history, uh, we're going to bring in some of the subject matter experts from DIA uh, so we can get really in the weeds with some of these uh, that specific things. So, Greg, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We'll, we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. Help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our donate now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.
0: Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network